0: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? um, You're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico.
1: And I'm your other co-host, dependent on Matt Bernico, Dean (laughs) Deltloff. Okay. All
0: right. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to be dependent on you because I kind of I'm feeling a little bit sick this week. So Bummer. I know I'm going to make you pick up the slack for sure. Um, but before I before I make you pick that slack up off the ground, as I like to do,
1: I'm ready. My I'm yeah. I'm rubbing my hands along. I'm ready.
0: Great. Let's play a quick game to kind of get this episode started. Here's how the game works. I'm going to read you some quotes and you're going to tell me who said them. <laughs> okay. You're never going to guess who it is. Okay, here's the first one. (laughs) Hands off Africa. Stop choking Africa. It's not a mine to be stripped. Pretty radical, I'd say. Mm. Karl Marx. Could be. Could be him. Maybe it's Thomas Sankara. (laughs) Who knows, man? Okay, here's another one. To all the internal and external organizations that orchestrate war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in order to plunder, scourge, and destabilize the country, you are enriching yourselves through the illegal exploitation of this country's goods and through the brutal sacrifice of innocent victims.
1: Hmm, let's see. I'm gonna say uh, Joseph Robinette Biden.
0: Okay, you're close. I think maybe. <laughs> All right, here's the last one. What causes poverty is not so much the absence of goods and opportunities, but their unequal distribution.
1: Oh, that's that's Fidel Castro, everybody's favorite <laughs> Cuban <laughs> Marxist leader. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, Dean, you're wrong on all of them. Unfortunately, uh, that's Pope Francis, and every single one of those, uh, every single one of those quotes there—that's him. Um, pretty wild, huh? Yeah, You've been duped. You've been tricked.
1: Pope Francis, who would have known? He's the combination of Karl Marx, Joe Biden, and Fidel Castro all in one. In, big in some guy. ways, that's kind <laughs> of right. Uh, <laughs> not,
0: not that far off. <laughs> but it's like unequal parts, right? Like maybe too much
1: Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen him smoke a cigar. <laughs> and that's a problem. All right, folks. We
0: are 52 years out from when Gustavo Gutierrez wrote A Theology of Liberation. And the, uh, the words from Pope Francis uh, that we just read... <laughs> kind of weirdly, on this trip to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, demonstrate that development has not quite gotten the so-called developing world very far. In fact, it's bad still. <laughs> Surprise. Um, the poor are still poor, and uh, the exploited are still exploited. There you go. Um, that's about it right now. Yeah. Uh, but in this episode, we're going to reflect a little bit more on the theme that we started last week around economic development and uh, how we can distinguish liberation from that particular perspective. Um, as a as sort of a, a different contribution to thinking about uh, you know global economics and, and social movements. So this week, we're going to get into uh, the whole conversation a little bit deeper by introducing a new concept, and that is a uh, concept called dependency theory.
1: Yeah, dependency theory is maybe the flip side to the conversation we had last week. So if last week we said you got to know something about development to understand liberation theology, you also got to know something about dependency theory. And we did talk a little bit about it and gestured toward it. But we felt like maybe it would be a good idea to spend a little bit more time on it this week. And there's a lot to say about it. It's a huge tradition. It's really fun to learn about. In brief, dependency theory looks for the ways that global economies and national economies, countries and so on, share this kind of interrelated and unequal relationship when it comes to the flows of production and capital. So, for example, the dependency theory would want to show the ways that development in the U.S. and Europe happens at the expense and as a result of the plunder of countries in the Global South, like the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So Pope Francis is kind of, you know, not doing dependency theory exactly, but also not not doing it, and that's something we'll talk about. So we'll get deeper into the specifics of dependency theory in a minute, but I think what we want to do in the episode is sort of parse out how that is a pretty radical theory. It has come on maybe some hard times in the last uh, few decades, but I think is still actually very important and worth listening to. Um, we're gonna parse out how dependency theory is a radical theory and somehow finds its way into the language of the Catholic Church even so deeply that you can get somebody like Pope Francis right now in the last couple of weeks in Africa, using this kind of language, right? Talking about exploitation, talking about the people who are enriching themselves at the expense of um, other people, both their labor and their lives, right? Uh, Pope Francis is kind of rhetorically giving us sort of like a really morally powerful version of what we find in the drier economic parts of dependency theory.
0: All right, that's a pretty good place to start. Let's just jump right into the conversation then. So we talked a lot about development last week, and you know, it's it's about the integration of a you know particular economy into the global capitalist system, right? How can we make the Congo you know more plugged into uh, global capitalism so that you know everybody in the Congo gets the great benefits of capitalism? <laughs> I'm laughing because there aren't any. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but uh, the idea is that uh, by by plugging these like these uh, quote unquote developing countries. Into the global economy, that like you know, it's a uh, it's going to lift all boats. People get work, the economy grows, and supposedly, you know, everything gets better for everybody. But Dean, how does it actually work out?
1: Right. Well, remember what we were talking about last week with uh, Gutierrez. There's this sort of um, insistence that if everybody adopts the same models as the global north then everybody will reach the same kind of level of uh, social improvements as, as the Global North, or at least it's a pathway to better lives than what they have now in the Global South. And uh, as Gutierrez was pointing out already in the late 60s, early 70s, that was not really the case in Latin America. And as Matt said earlier, it's been a half a century later, and the Pope is still in Africa saying we got to put a stop to all this. So we talked a little bit, too, about how development starts off with kind of a, you know, it's a weird phrase to say, but a sort of progressive capitalist idea. Uh, There's some room to talk about state intervention, public uh, investment, all that kind of stuff. Um, But things slowly get even worse, Um, like that in itself already was exploitative and not improving the economic situation of people in the global south. But somehow things deteriorate further with uh neoliberalism in the 80s and so on right so uh ever since gutierrez made this passionate call for liberation things have become more and more of a bummer um dependency theory is interesting because it's sort of the economic way of trying to figure it out and it has an interesting history parallel to that development story that we were telling so development if you might remember it emerges after the second world war and it's this moment where people are trying to figure out, OK, all these countries are kind of newly independent. They're throwing off their colonial chains. And there was this huge war and the Soviet Union is like kind of courting certain countries. How does the, the West figure out how to stop that? The solution was we uh, we do this kind of international investment in capitalist structures. And what's wild is some of the folks who were tasked with figuring that out, like through the United Nations, Uh, came up against some pretty big walls and from those institutions from the experience of being people who were part of economic commissions and think tanks and even banking um, those folks began to kind of like parse out exactly what are the economic barriers that they were encountering and i think that is actually a super interesting beginning for dependency theory that um, eventually there's a, a marxist component and lots of other things going on but It actually originates in kind of the like the natural limitations of development itself. Um, So we are going to maybe get into a little bit of that first uh, with the help of a really wild essay that is not my favorite essay in the world, but is worth reading um, if you can read it kind of critically. It is called Dependency Theory, Marxist Analysis, Liberation Theology. It's by a Jesuit named Arthur McGovern. And it was written for a book that was a celebration of Gustavo Gutierrez's 60th birthday. I guess if you're that great, people write essays for your birthday. <laughs> you get a big <laughs> book. Yeah. What, a, what a great gift. Um, and so uh, it was kind of it's McGovern's contribution to the legacy of Gutierrez is to try to spell out the relevance of dependency theory. And like I said, I think he uh, I think there's parts of the essay I really like and parts I super don't. But we're not going to talk about the parts we don't. (laughs) It's not about (laughs) McGovern. We're just going to talk about the parts he gets right. We'll leave it to you to figure out the rest, I guess. Uh, You can read the whole book on Archive. The book, what is it called? The book that this is from, Expanding the View. Um, So it's a good book, and you can read lots of other essays about Gutierrez in there. Uh, Matt, do you want to get us uh, started here? How can we maybe start the story about dependency theory uh, with these economic commissions and so on? Yeah, for sure. Well, let's start
0: off right where you just mentioned, right? Um, right after World War II, And with these um, interesting, not Marxists kind of running into weird problems. Um, so this is from a governance piece, and he's kind of mapping out um, where dependency theory comes from, and um, how we can talk about it. I think it's actually pretty helpful, though, because it gives us some, uh, some more vocabulary to inject into the conversation. In the first decades after World War II, Latin America sought to pattern its development according to this model. That is the, the model of, like, modern development, like we've been talking. But one aspect of conventional wisdom soon came under attack by Raul Prebisch and the United Nations Economic Commission on Latin America, the ECLA, a great, uh, a great and confusing acronym to throw into the mix. <laughs> Not
1: right. Lutheran, so that's the important thing if you are a person who goes to church. <laughs> I know.
0: Man, did that ever <laughs> refer me for a loop. Um, okay. So the ECLA, the United Nations Economic Commission on Latin America. They challenged especially the conventional view that international trade was mutually beneficial for all trading powers. ECLA studies indicated that Latin American countries suffered from short-term instability caused by the fluctuating prices and from long-term deterioration in terms of trade. This resulted, ECLA argued, from Latin America's reliance on export of primary goods like bananas, coffee minerals, etc., to provide income to finance the buying of imported industrial goods. Far from being mutually beneficial, Latin America continued to run a deficit balance of payments. The, quote, center nations profited, and the, quote, peripheral nations suffered. Prebisch and ECLA still retained much of the modernist model for development, but they introduced a framework of analysis that would become an essential part of dependency theory. The division of the capitalist world into the dominant center nations and subordinate peripheral nations, such as those of Latin America. The modern scheme of development that they're talking about in this is suggesting that, you know, to to do the work of like of creating economic growth, of lifting people out of poverty, that whole capitalist narrative. Right. The only way that you can do that is by facilitating trade through between countries. Right. Exports from uh, Latin America and imports of like industrial goods from from, you know. The global north and the united states and so on but that's not a fair deal if you think about it because uh you know some of those things cost more and some of those things cost less and the labor is not equal and all kinds of other things aren't equal maybe we can talk about some of that a little more in a minute but what you have is um a center core countries that benefit from that relationship of trade and the peripheral countries which do not benefit and that's dependency theory right the countries uh, in the periphery, they are dependent on the, uh, on the core for the, um, you know, the imported goods they need. And that kind of creates this uh, unstable situation where um, you know, their lives be- become very dependent and hard to do if uh, the, the core countries suddenly say, you know, the rules are different, uh, tariffs are changing, we're not trading that anymore, you know, they have all the power in the situation.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's interesting that this is all sort of, like I said, originating in, you know, the United Nations Economic Commission, right? Like, not a, not a radical Marxist cell, but um, some kind of interesting folks trying to work things out. Um, Priebus himself was uh, an Argentine economist who did a lot in the economy of Argentina, too. Lots of interesting things to say there. Um, Meanwhile, there is a lot of other dependency theorists trying to work out the precise parts of this relationship. So the big general thing that you got to know about dependency theory is the core and periphery. There are people who prefer different terms or they cash it out a little differently. But that's kind of the operating thesis that most dependency theories work with, that there's a core of the the planet, some core countries uh, that sort of absorb the wealth out of the peripheries. Um, so that kind of insight gets worked out differently. People try to spell it out differently, how it happens, um, maybe how intense it is or what all the causal factors are. There's major disagreements about that. We can talk more about that in a minute too, but, uh, that's really that key piece, right? Is that people are trying to work in international development in the early mid part of the 20th century, and they're already finding all kinds of, like, natural problems, right? They, you, can, uh, you can make all these loans to countries in the global south, but there are these long, structured relationships that make it hard. Um, the more radical dependency theorists also trace the problems back to colonialism, and they tell a long story about even the, the kind of differences between, like, the Latifunda, which is, like, a huge landowning class in Latin America, that system... Um, as compared to like the system in the colonial U.S. So lots of different things kind of going on. You can really get in the weeds. But the key is to sort of describe that unequal exchange and and kind of what's going on. Uh, In addition to the ECLA stuff in Latin America, you get versions of dependency theory in other places, too. So like in Africa, for instance, um, I think we mentioned Walter Rodney's book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, has been having kind of a renaissance lately, which is good um samir amin he was a, an egyptian scholar um who also bounced around different economic institutions and tried to figure that out although he was a marxist like the whole time um a secret one uh, there's some other folks like walden Bello in in the philippines who wrote some really interesting stuff and he was like imprisoned actually very recently he's still alive um and still active so like you can find this insight i guess popping up in lots of different places um, and then there are contemporaries who are pushing it, I think, in some interesting ways. Um, at the Monthly Review that we talk about a lot, they still talk about these kinds of issues a lot. Prabhat um, and Utsupat Petnayak are these really interesting Indian economists who uh, talk a lot about drain from India to the West. I'm just kind of like throwing these names out there, I guess, because it's helpful to get a sense of like the global scope of this insight that like if you're in the global South, and you're trying to figure out what to do with your economy. At some point, you're going to sort of stumble on the observation that like, man, no matter what we do, all the stuff that we're trying to accomplish keeps getting sucked out. Like all the capital that we raise gets sucked out somehow through debt payments or through multinational value chains or whatever. And we just can't like get a leg up. Like there's some kind of ceiling or like a structural thing holding us down. And I think the fact that that insight comes from these people who are doing like practical economic work is actually like, a, a, I don't know, just a really, really fascinating part of dependency theory in general.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, you have a big list of people who are writing about this. And I think that's really good and helpful. Um, I think another place you'll see related types of thought, maybe not exactly the same, right? But resonances is uh, with like people who write about decolonial theory, like Walter Mignolo or Santiago Castro Gomez or something, they are very good at recognizing the ways that um, this is not just like a problem of the, you know, 1970s or something. That <laughs> It didn't just pop up. It didn't just pop up then. But, you know, a lot of these um, economic problems and these relationships, uh, like globally, are, um, you know, the inheritance of colonialism.
1: Yeah, I mean, bringing up the decolonial piece and Mignolo is interesting too, because they're sort of like... Uh, Maybe the next generation of thinkers after this first and second wave of dependency folks and one thing that they do that I think is really valuable is to expand the conversation beyond the economic stuff to look at like the epistemological consequences of colonization yeah. right yeah like how there's kind of other forms of dependence beyond just the economy. There are some cool like bridge figures there, like uh, Anibal Quijano, who's a really interesting um, sociologist or Enrique Dussel, a liberation theologian and also a decolonial theorist. So there's, you know, kind of like you can trace the development of that sort of trajectory in a lot of really creative ways in Latin America. Man, it's great. If you <laughs> if you ever really w- just want to read a bunch of nerd stuff um, or like really get in the weeds with theory, there is so much to read um, coming out of Latin America, especially even now, just squaring all this. But anyway, um, really neat. So all that to say, dependency theory, this insight that there the peripheral nations are dependent on the core and vice versa, that the core also depends on the peripheral nations for its raw materials and so on, foodstuffs, etc. That insight is something that theologians are reading about. Um, there are kind of like right and left expressions of dependency theory. So, for example, like in Brazil, there was a um, even an attempt to basically govern in such a way that recognized these issues, because Brazil is a huge economy, and so they could make some interesting choices in the the mid-20th century. Um, there were dependency theorists like Celso Furtado and um, Cardozo and some other people who were like in government, basically, you know, calling the shots about development, but they were couped. Um, Cardozo eventually became the president of Brazil later on and also an incredibly compromising <laughs> kind of figure. So uh, left and right characters, in Dependency theory for sure. Um, some of the left wing people would be like Andre Gunder Frank, who was a, a really big one, um, did a lot of work in Cuba and talking about Marxism. But uh, the liberation theologians are fascinating because they just like read everybody. Like if you read that book we read last week, Gutierrez's Theology of Liberation, all those names I just mentioned are in his uh, bibliography. Like they're just absorbing it all, trying really desperately to figure out like how to have some theological voice that really understands why the poor are poor in Latin America. And I think it's really to their credit, the credit of liberation theologians to even like, you know, like they, they certainly have positions. It's not like they don't take stands or kind of gravitate to one side of dependency theory or another, but and um, you get the sense that they're just like willing to listen to anybody who's going to shed some light on the real social realities that they're trying to to deal with.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, cool. We've got a big sort of genealogy and lots of names and, and ring suggestions for people on the table, which is great. <laughs> and I think that's wonderful. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, let's see. How about let's talk about this uh, for a minute. There's a big economic story happening here with dependency theory. But like, I guess, where might people see this type of relationship in the world? Like. Um, you know, uh, who, people who are living in, in the core co- countries, right? Like we are right now benefiting from these relationships. So I don't know, where are some places that people might look to see like the the dependency theory in action?
1: Yeah, started? that is a good question. And I think it's good to, especially when you're reading this kind of stuff from the core, always be mindful of the position that we're reading from or kind of understanding people from. Uh, I remember one time I was talking to um, my boss, Luke, uh, who occasionally listens to this podcast. So (laughs) shout out to you, Luke. I'll find out if you listen to this episode or not, I guess. Um, (laughs) He was telling me the story about this retreat where a particular priest um, had mentioned that in Canada, we don't need a liberation theology. We actually need a theology of what it means to like be under the Pharaoh or be like part of the Pharaoh. And I was like, whoa, that's intense. And probably true. So lots of important yeah. kind of ways of, you know, maybe understanding how close and how distant we are to liberation theology. But um, when it comes to living in the core, it's actually maybe harder to see these relationships because of things like what Marx would call commodity fetishism or, the way that we're alienated from the stories of stuff around us, right? So like you go to the store, the grocery store or an electronics store, you see a product on the shelf. When you see it, there's nothing there to really tell you how it got to you. I mean, the closest you could get is like the tag on a shirt or like a sticker that says, I don't know, this banana's from Colombia" or something like that. Uh, on the whole, you don't really have access to the narrative of that thing. Um, and I think that's really important. That it takes like a lot of work from the core to figure it out, and maybe to think of um, a couple examples. You, a lot of food stuffs are really obvious, like coffee and bananas, and all the things that we mentioned earlier. That hasn't really changed in fifty years. Um, but I like to think about things like the iPhone in particular. The iPhone is like, you know, if you buy an iPhone, you get a package, and it says "designed in California." which is the funniest thing in the world because it can't say made yeah. or manufactured in California, but they're trying to insist that the, <laughs> the real value belongs there, right? The values in the design. And there's some really interesting work by some Marxist economists, uh, John Smith and Intan Sawandi on what they call value chains that looks at all the ways that like the parts of an iPhone are manufactured all over the world in incredibly low wage conditions and they make their way into the product that is the iPhone, but the value created at many, many different stages of the process of making the parts, making the boxes, all that kind of thing, all that value gets funneled into Apple, right? So uh, it's really fascinating when you kind of break down like how much labor in an iPhone actually goes into making the iPhone and how much profit ultimately ends up in the hands of Apple, which is you know a US-based but multinational company. So I think basically you can probably look at anything that you have sitting around your house or apartment at this stage if you live in the global north. And uh, if you start peeling back the layers, you'll find that somewhere the raw materials probably didn't come from anywhere nearby you. And increasingly they're coming from countries like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, right? Or Bolivia or places that have huge reserves of things like cobalt and lithium and things that are important for batteries and those kind of consumer goods. So yeah, look around and I guess just start Googling what's in your (laughs) what's in your room. You'll you'll learn a lot about uh, dependency theory pretty quickly that way.
0: Yeah, it's true. A few days ago now, uh, there was a picture that got tweeted out um, that man. So it was so annoying. I cringed when I saw it. Um, It was Joe Biden sticking his head out of the uh, The driver's side window of a electric vehicle. Hummer. (laughs) I did not see that. Oh, my God. I'll send it to you and you'll be mad. Anyways, the you know, uh, he was he was doing it to kind of promote the idea of electric vehicles. And um, I think also kind of like give some support for the idea that like driving an electric vehicle doesn't mean you have to drive a dumb vehicle. (laughs) You can still drive this big Hummer that you that you love as an American. And also uh, in sort of pass legislation to um people can get like tax credits for buying electric vehicles but um ironically enough not that one because it's <laughs> too expensive <laughs> um anyways uh, i i'm bringing up this big this big dumb hummer that i do hate uh, right now because the current logic to deal with climate change in the united states is to like wean people off fossil fuels uh especially through their personal vehicles through cars and trucks and whatever By, you know, making electric cars and trucks available to them. And that's very frustrating because that's actually not a very good answer to Mm -hmm. climate change uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, At least one of them is that um, electric vehicles uh, have lithium-ion batteries and those require cobalt. And cobalt comes from the Congo, where the Pope is, tying this whole thing together. (laughs) And... uh, uh, cobalt is, I mean, it's a conflict mineral, man. Like there's like child labor, uh, involved in the mining of cobalt. There's slave labor involved in the mining of cobalt, countless deaths, uh, of people in the mines and so on. Um, and I think it's a great example of like, of dependency theory, right? Because as the, uh, as the core tries to transition to a different type of personal vehicle, rather than coming up with a better solution, they're going to do the thing that the Pope said you shouldn't do <laughs> and strip away all of these, uh, all these minerals from from the Congo and, and completely plunder it. Right. So it, it comes up in all those kinds of places, though, um, as, as long as you kind of know where to look or think about, like, where the things that you're buying? Come
1: mm-hmm. from. Yeah, exactly. And that is the big piece, too, right? That the the kind of life and the kind of solutions that are put forward in the global north, those are lives and solutions that fundamentally require the literal sacrifice of human beings in the global south, right? Like, people who lose their lives um, or are forced to live in extreme and dire poverty and are food insecure and so on. Um, those are all economic choices that not that they make, but that the system has made for them. Right. And, and it couldn't be otherwise for those folks. And that is because Joe Biden wants a big elector comer. Right. <laughs> there are other ways to do this, uh, other ways to to organize our global economies and so on. Um, but the fact that Gutierrez and many other people half a century ago were pointing all this out and we haven't gotten very far um, to me, it it is a, a good sort of reminder that um, what they were saying about a more benevolent cla- capitalism, again, to say a, a sort of oxymoronic phrase, what they were saying about that is even more relevant now, now that capitalism has become somehow more violent uh, in many ways. So important to figure that out. Um I think it's interesting, too, to maybe pull it back to the theology piece. The reason liberation theologians were reading this stuff is because they really wanted to fundamentally understand like what was the situation for the, the poor in their midst, the people that they encountered. I think that question about what does it mean for us to read it in, in the core, for me, it's it's a bit different, right? It's like, I want to read this material because I, I actually don't encounter the poor in the global South for the most part, not in any direct way. And if you want to encounter the poor, you have to like go out of your way to do it. Um, and you also have to really go out of your way to sort of figure out the, the reasons those people are poor because it, it's intentionally obscured from your view all the time. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's not a lot of companies who make electric cars who are going to be like, yeah, I got this cobalt from the Congo in a mine where people are like doing artisanal mining and kids have to basically quit school so that they can bring home these minerals to their families and stuff. Right. Like they're not going to tell you that, but that is what's happening. That's the, the cost. So I think that's also interesting too. Like very few theologians that I can find myself. And if you find them, please tell me about them. I want to talk to them. But very few theologians that I can find are sort of trying to understand that piece in the global north anymore. It used to be the case that that, that was like a really huge trend. Um, but now it just seems kind of lost. So I think that's my question, even coming out of this conversation is like, why aren't theologians as invested in this kind of discourse as they might have been, you know, 30 years ago or or even 20 years ago? And I don't have a good answer to that question. Some some impressions and intuitions, but. I really don't know. They're just not Marxists anymore. That's, <laughs> That's the problem. The problem. <laughs> yeah.
0: We'll get a new wave
1: of them maybe um, now that everyone, now
0: that Marxism, maybe, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe we'll see, we'll see some more of these guys. That's
1: out. right. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit more about the theological story. Maybe this will be one roundabout way of creating some more impressions about that question. I was just asking. So uh, liberation yeah. theology, some theologians who are trying to figure out dependency theory, um, We all know the story who listen to this podcast. Liberation theology had a hard time um, with both civil governments and also ecclesial governments. Uh, It ran afoul of dictatorships. It ran afoul also of uh, Pope John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, Lots of tension, lots of difficult conversations that um, were sometimes misunderstandings, sometimes uh, just outright discipline and so on. It's interesting because a lot of those misunderstandings or discipline and however you you prefer to talk about it, uh, I think result from liberation theologians throwing in with this more radical vision, right? That they're really trying to say, look, when we look around, we see this poverty and we want to sort it out. Um, The interesting thing is a lot of bishops in Latin America and other countries too also kind of absorbed this insight. So, for example, like. If you look at the documents in Medellin, Colombia and Puebla, Mexico that were written by the uh, Latin American bishops, you see explicit reference to liberation as a theme. You see explicit reference to dependency, to imperialism, like they use these terms and they don't suggest a Marxist alternative, but they do suggest an explicit anti-capitalist alternative. And they kind of put forward this vision of the church centered around base communities as like organizing units and you have this kind of tension that works itself out in the global church as well the vatican like doesn't really know what to do with this that like so many bishops in the global south are resonating with that message um to be fair gutierrez also had like a direct hand (laughs) in uh, helping to shape some of that language but uh yeah the vatican is like struggling to kind of sort that out and i think that is also a really interesting kind of story um all of the the sort of development popes in the 20th century including JP2 i think to their credit are also trying to figure out why the poor are poor and over time even JP2 i think absorbs some of this uh more than he would have earlier on um but it's interesting to kind of watch the liberation theologians try to on the one hand embrace this really radical social analysis and then on the other hand try to like get it mediated up through the Vatican and yeah, with the uh, mixed results, I guess, to say the least.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is interesting to see how it starts, you know, in, in these conversations in Latin America, but between economics and liberation theology, and then it does work its way up to the point where now there's a Pope saying hands off Africa, which I think is pretty rad,
1: but a pretty wild trip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think it is really interesting too, to see Pope Francis, Bringing these things together, uh, if you look at his papal encyclicals or the writings that he does, uh, all all over the place, he's quoting bishops in the global south. Like whereas Ratzinger and I guess Pope Benedict, <laughs> as he was known as the Pope, uh, he tended to be a more academic guy. He's quoting you know Nietzsche and poets and whomever else, um, and that's fine. Like that, that's great. I read a lot of those people too, but. Uh, Pope Francis isn't really quoting those people he's quoting more popular poets in global South countries and he's quoting bishops conferences like it's a way more maybe global um, citational practice you might say and I think what you see in Pope Francis is somebody who is first of all from the global South right he's the first Pope from Latin America Um, he is, uh, coming from a country, Argentina, that was square in the middle of a lot of dependency problems and violence and so on. Uh, and now he's on this trip to Africa, first to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and then to South Sudan. And, uh, the bishops in Africa have also really found a voice in the last several years. Um, they've released some of the most radical statements. Most recently, they put out a statement to the, the COP meeting that was in Egypt, basically talking about exploitation and dependency. So Pope Francis, I think is absorbing basically what the bishops of the global South are still saying, you know, that we're still being exploited. We still are. We want people to take their hands off of us and so on. And Pope Francis as a Pope from the global South, um, I think it's really kind of moving and, and powerful to see him like embracing this language in a full way. Like I said, Pope John Paul II actually had some radical things like this to say every now and again, but, uh, It's different coming from a pope who's also from the global south. For real,
0: um, it is a very potent image. You're right. Um, And a really important one right now is to be in the Congo, um, kind of bearing witness to all these things that are happening. Dean, I'm wondering, though, Okay, right now we've been talking a lot about all these great popes. And. Well, a few great, a
1: few great popes, a a classic 90s action film, (laughs)
0: Yeah, a few great popes, the tradition of like people of Christians paying attention to development and dependency theory, for sure, right? It's a very Catholic tradition. But I wonder how we would make this make more sense or come alive to people who are
1: Protestants who are not (laughs) as Catholic. What do you think? That's a great question. I mean, there are, I think, a lot of Protestant theologians, too, who are really invested in this conversation. In fact, in the global north, a lot of Protestants were maybe even more directly engaged than Catholic communities because there were politics in the Catholic church that just weren't as present or operative for the Protestants. So for example, like uh, people like Robert McCarthy Brown or Dorothy Zuella or Harvey Cox, Um, trying to think of some other, there's a bunch that I'm forgetting right now, but there was kind of a whole wave of pretty impressive Protestants writing about all this. And I think they also maybe recognized the freedom that they had as being in a different church tradition and not subject to the same discipline. You know, like Harvey Cox wrote a famous book about Leonardo Boff's silencing, for example, that it's not that a Catholic couldn't have written it, but maybe, you know, depending on their position, might have had to write it a little more carefully than he would have had to do. So I guess what what I'm saying is there are Protestants in the Global North who cared, and there are also Protestants in the Global South contributing to this, too. So like uh, Ruba Malvez in Brazil, um, Elsa Tamez, a really amazing feminist theologian, um, you know, lots of Latin American people kind of engaged. And then, of course, in in Africa, too, you have a really lively Protestant tradition that's invested in this as well. So, yeah, all that to say, I think that Protestants have their own, like, lights that they can find in that conversation, too. And and examples, too, of how Protestants have been engaging, I don't know, the experience of uh, Catholic theology, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Matt? In some ways, I'm always envious of Protestants because they just like have less to worry about, (laughs) maybe, (laughs) but that could just be a a bad perception from the Catholic side.
0: Well, I think that the the Catholic tradition of like kind of thinking about economics in this way is pretty cool Um, and something that Protestants, it'd be great if they okay, let me make sure I say this exactly the way I want to. It would be cool if more Protestants in, like, the the core, right? <laughs> in the imperialist core um, were able to pick up some of these ideas and think through them a little bit more. Because I think, by and large, like, at least in the United States, uh, Protestants lack this kind of nuance in thinking about uh, about economics, for sure, right? It's just not, like, in our history like it is in the Catholic Church. There are all kinds of things that um, I think really come alive a little bit more when you start thinking about um, dependency theory and how global economics like really impact your life personally, especially like if you want to start reading the Bible through that lens, which I know is what Protestants want to do, right? Like that's <laughs> that's the thing that you got to know. Um, Protestants they want to know how this is going to change the way they think about the Bible or something, um, or or what what do the parables mean? What do Jesus' teachings mean uh, when you start thinking about these things? And um, I guess I'm going to go to another <laughs> a really Catholic place for this answer, but like. In whenever Pope Francis talks about um, the story of the Good Samaritan, which he does in Fratelli Tutti, and he does it elsewhere too, when Francis tells the story, it it kind of has this like global tone to it, right? Where there's um uh the, there's the Good Samaritan in the sense that you're you know you're passing by your neighbor on the road or something, but you get the feeling when Francis tells it that it's about uh, a global community, not just the people who you actually mm-hmm. pass on the road <laughs> or something. All that to say, I think that there's a lot for Protestants to learn from. I think the uh, the The tradition of Catholic social thought around um, economics, especially in this particular register and how it's, um, you know, grown kind of to be a part of the church tradition.
1: I think that's right. And I think, too, like uh, one thing that I find really fascinating about the Protestant church, but Catholics, too, is there is a huge divide between what the church does institutionally and what people in the pew know or understand about it. And the reason I'm saying that is like, you know, I work for a Catholic development organization and we're like constantly trying to make sure that Catholics know that we exist (laughs) and like try to convince them that like we are here and we are part of the church and what a cool thing that is. And you should be into it because you're Catholic. Right. And like that is a very challenging but very interesting and rewarding job to have to try to communicate that Um, in the Protestant churches in Canada, at least. And I know in the U.S. they have analogous things. Um, Many of them also have really strong development, uh, like ministries or branches or I don't know what they would call them. But like uh, the Anglicans, they have a a World Development Fund, for example, Um, the United Church of Canada. I mean, how many times have we brought Jim Hansen on this podcast to like talk to us about the global south? Right. Like they have this really robust solidarity development model, too. And I find like there's this really lively tradition in the Protestant churches, the mainline church. It's especially institutionally like they've really absorbed, I think, a lot of this stuff. Um, but I, do, I feel like I've never met a Protestant who's just like a normal person going to church who knows that that is going on, <laughs> like knows that the <laughs> money that they put in the plate is like you know, going to some staff person who, like, knows a thing or two about dependency theory and Gustavo Gutierrez and is, like, taking a trip to Cuba to talk to people about it, right? (laughs) Like, there's some kind of disconnect that happens there. And maybe for the better, I don't really know. But uh, it seems like there's, there's kind of a great ignorance there. Like, I'm always asking people, like oh, what do you know about what your church does for development just because that's what I'm in and uh yeah, it seems like there's some kind of disconnect
0: yeah, that makes sense.
1: I don't know what's the what does the Episcopal Church do for development? yeah
0: I mean there is like a development fund as well, but I don't think it's quite as robust theoretically as uh as the Catholic tradition, but maybe I don't know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about as well who knows <laughs> I would be happy to be yeah well in it I guess is what I'm trying to say yeah
1: I mean there's like a handful of listeners for sure who are I'm sure um yelling at their Yeah, maybe they know. Tell to, us, uh, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please, please do. <laughs> but I think it's a good question, though, right? Like, uh, I mean, the Catholic tradition has its own way of getting into it, but it carries these liabilities, and Protestants maybe have some unique opportunities to take it on board and and take it somewhere else and deepen it. Uh, maybe the the other thing, though, that this connects with is, I said earlier, dependency theory is kind of, like, fallen on bad times or hard times. Um, maybe it's worth kind of Getting toward the end of the conversation on that note, because um, I was complaining that theologians aren't reading this stuff anymore, but maybe this will be like the pitch for it. Um, so dependency theory, it was booming in the 70s and 80s, especially um, it started to wane, I think, after that for a lot of reasons Um for the same reasons that most progressive things started to wane uh, toward the end of the 80s into the 90s, right? The Soviet Union fell, neoliberalism kind of took everything over. There was a major collapse of uh, organizing, a lot of confusion, and um, dependency theory also, I think, gets sort of looked at as like a... um, I don't know how to put it, like a, a uniquely 20th century phenomenon. Like, it tells sometimes... People say. <laughs> people say this. I think they're wrong. People say that dependency theorists tell stories that are too big about the economy. But they're not, like, finely detailed enough. Um, I think if you read uh, dependency theory uh, on its own terms, you'll find that's not true. But uh, that's what people say. That's the impression. Um, people also say that dependency theory has been kind of replaced by some of the figures Matt mentioned earlier, like Magnolo and these more... Um, uh, decolonial theorists, even though those decolonial theorists themselves are often making reference to dependency theory. Um, I think there's just sort of a sense that it like has passed its prime or you know, there's been too many changes in the market and it doesn't really understand the complexity of global flows and all the rest of it. And I want to say I think that is bogus. Um, I think there's important debates to be had about global economy. I don't think dependency theory is like the only theory on the block that has anything worth paying attention to. Like there's lots of other stuff happening and lots of other theories of imperialism even, and it's good to read them all. But I think that people have really prematurely written uh, dependency theory off. And I think because theologically speaking, it is, I, I think like arguably the most significant political economy, body of literature that theologians have read in the last, like, <laughs> 60 years, uh, I think it's probably worth people picking it up again and, like, seeing how far it gets, right? Like, people are still writing about it. Um, the Monthly Review is still carrying on that tradition in its own way, and they publish all kinds of books that have to do with it. Like I said, Walden Bello just was imprisoned in the Philippines. Um, lots of kind of folks are are still pushing that forward, but I do think that it takes, like, maybe some work to figure out, how theology absorbs it. I don't know. What do you think, Matt? What what should why should Christians care about dependency theory right now?
0: Yeah, I mean I think it's it's hard not to care about it from my perspective at least. You know, to me this is this is really close to the imperial mode of living conversation that we were having not too long ago, right? I think that dependency theory is important for us because our lives are actively benefiting from other people's suffering. And I don't know, that should just not sit well with people. <laughs> but uh, it's a hard thing to cultivate a particular type of consciousness around because it is so mundane and kind of just ingrained in the way that we live. But I don't know, that that's what does it for me, right? Um, people are suffering because I have a new iPhone or something, um, because I am constantly buying new things that have lithium-ion batteries in them. And I think that, that that's an important part of the conversation, right? How do we respond ethically? Or or even like the bigger picture question, like this is, I guess, trying to bring it back around to Joe Biden driving the Hummer. If we want a green economy or, you know, whatever we want to call it in um, the coming years, if we want to make sure that we don't all boil to death on this planet, (laughs) (laughs) we have to figure this into our strategy and into the, the ways that leftist social movements, Christian or not, make demands of our government and other people in power, right? Like we can't just say we want a green new deal Because that misses all of the ways people in in the global south will still be kind of caught up in the in the machinations of global capitalism and and their lives will be limited because of it. I think there's all kinds of reasons of why people should care about this particular type of theory. Um, Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Dean?
1: Yeah, I think that you are right, as always. Um, I uh, I also think uh, it's interesting because it. For me, what I found so useful about it is it does give you a sense of the scale of the problem of global capitalism, and it is truly global. Like, we all have to go on strike. We all have to go build the labor movement. It's all very important in our own countries and so on. But at the end of the day, like the global economy is so interlinked, so intertwined that it's going to take like a lot of work and a lot of um I don't know, challenging global kinds of shifts that will be really difficult to manage um and will likely be fraught with tension and lots of big problems. Uh it's going to take a lot of change to create some other kind of yeah. order and like that is a troubling thing in some ways. But I think it's also helpful to be like I can kind of make sense of why some of these tensions are are emerging geopolitically, you know, between China and Russia and, I mean, lots of other places and who knows what's going to happen in Latin America, right? Um, there's a lot at stake as the the sort of order that failed, the developmentalist order that failed, is cracking apart, breaking apart. Um, and not always for the better in every situation either, like in, in complicated ways. And I think that is going to be challenging. But dependency theory and kind of the, the people who kept thinking with it, Um, are trying to think through, like, what are ways to rebuild it? What's the systematic way of of kind of doing something different? For example, like uh, Andre Gunder Frank, he was the dependency theorist who was on the more Marxist side. And like he was pretty unequivocal. He was like, you know, Cuba got it right. You have to really assert your own sovereignty. You've got to delink. Um, Not to say that you don't trade with other folks, but like you got to do it on your own terms, you know, and that was like a pretty radical suggestion. Not every dependency theorist was into it, but uh, it seems pretty right (laughs) to me or, um, you know, like Samir Amin, this great Egyptian economist, uh, a similar kind of thing that he thought there needed to be a delinking of the global south from the global north and then a kind of like south south. Uh, trade alliance basically to sort of figure out you know other terms of development so i think there's like a lot of stuff going on and also dependency theory is great because it gives you both the revolutionary side uh but it also gives you people who are like in the weeds of really boring economics right like <laughs> looking at trade deals looking at like how to create economic relationships and to me anyway that's like i don't know kind of like comforting to know that you actually don't just have to throw up your hands and be like well I guess there just has to be a revolution and nothing will change until that happens. Like there's some other steps in between maybe, and it's one body of literature that's trying to parse that out. I don't know if that makes any sense. I I guess I just feel like there's explanatory power there and I feel empowered that someone explained it to me. (laughs) That's why I feel grateful about it. Yeah. Well,
0: let's close up the conversation then and like turn back to Gutierrez for a minute. Right. So we said it's been 52 years since Gutierrez wrote a theology of liberation. Knowing that fact is both depressing and I guess a little bit liberating. But uh, thinking back, you know, to the conversation we had last week, where Gutierrez explains that, you know, this purely economic development is is not going to work, right? He said that 52 years ago. And it's still true. Pope Francis is telling us it's true, even today in, in the Congo, right? Like he's, he's pointing to it directly. He's waving his <laughs> hands around and saying, look at this whole place. It's, you got to think about it. Um, but, you know, Gutierrez's response, though, to development is, is not development. It's liberation, right? It's about putting, like, the oppressed people in the driver's seat for their, for their, own, um, their own economic development and their own lives, you know, and not relying on global banks to sort things out mm-hmm. for them. So I don't know. Um, to me, I you know Gutierrez still is still right. He's he's right. Development is always going to kind of put us in this place. It's always going to make so-called developing countries dependent on the core. And instead, I think we have to work from this other perspective, right? About liberation rather than economic growth along these like uh, uh, normal capitalist lines or whatever.
1: Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can uh, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can follow us on Twitter at The Magnificast. Uh, If you support us at two bucks at the Patreon, you can also join a great Discord community that we have. Um, Lots of good conversations going on there lately uh some wild books that i'm learning about some great memes um some a lot of good animal content lately I feel like that's been a really strong sort of uh channel um appreciate that uh so you can do that at two books or more um let's see what else do i need to say our music is by maria armstrong our outro is by the illogical spoon and we'll see you next week
0: i don't want
1: Keep your hoods up And you stay up late In Jackson You Keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up And you stay up late Oh, don't mind A cold night But we might mind If you leave too soon So come on now It's still early at least I would